Comics Monthly Monday number 9. Nah, but we do have business. Good business. Other ships are raking it in, ferrying freaks to that island. So why not us? I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. And transfer out, freak! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Sheep flying, no good, rotten, fork-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-legged, Worm-headed stack of monkeys! And now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Blah, 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 blah. Howdy! It's another Comics Monthly Monday. Do you like my new intro there? It's a little bit of uh, Grand mini Old Pearl. Opry. little mini Pearl. That's right, I got a tag hanging off my bald head right now with a, a price tag. Um, it's Comic Monthly Monday, number nine, number nine, number nine. And, you uh, realize that most of our listening audience has not a fucking clue who Minnie Pearl is. She's been dead for, like, how many years now? I know, I know. They're, maybe they, you know... Maybe that, you know, yeah, it would be zombie mini pearl now, like. <laughs> <laughs> I'd buy that one I would, right there. That's Mar- Mar- how about, like, Marvel Comics comes out with a zombie hee-haw, with all the characters from hee-haw coming back as flesh-eating zombies. That's frightening, but funny. Yeah, but I would funny. buy that book. I really would. Uh-huh. Ash versus zombie hee-haw. I want to see that coming. <laughs> I would so fucking buy that. Why aren't we writing for Marvel? See, Grandpa Jones versus Ash. Excellent. Uh, I like Grandpa Jones. I'm going to pitch that. I'm going to find out the company that just did those Ash comics. I'm going to pitch that idea to him because I think that's a winner right there. I've always wanted to see Grandpa Jones fight Grandpa from the Waltons. They're very similar. Versus Grandpa from the Munsters. No, no, a tag team match. Grandpa from the Munsters and <laughs> Grandpa from from uh, what the Waltons with with um, Wilford Brimley and Grandpa Jones on the other team, and it's a tag team to the death match. <laughs> I would pay to see that too. I would pay, I would pay twenty bucks for a pay per view of that. Especially oh. since most of them are probably, except for Wilford Brimley, and he might go into a diabetic coma right in the middle of it, and I would pay extra to see that. <laughs> I swear to God that in my lifetime, I've seen the headline, Grandpa from the Munsters dies at least four times. So is that fucking guy still alive, or is he dead again? Because, I mean, no, I I'm think serious, he's dead, man. But he ran it's for like president every... once, and he sort of had a little resurgent when he ran. I think he was a libertarian candidate for president for a while. And uh, and then he no, died serious, a few like years it. after that, which means it was a good thing he wasn't president because he would have croaked in office. 
I mean, like every it's like every six or seven years, I see that headline that yeah. whatever the, what was his name Al something or other yeah Grandpa. has died, and I'm like, right. goddamn, I thought he was dead twenty years ago, that, and then you know a couple that, years later, I see it again, and it's like, what the hell? That used to happen to uh, the the writer Kurt Vonnegut. Every two or three years, you would read an obituary about him, and all his fans would be like, oh no, Kurt Vonnegut died because he was old and. I think he had, like, throat cancer or something like that, so... And he was kind of a downer type of guy anyway, so everybody was kind of expecting him to die for years. But he finally did die. He is officially dead now, unfortunately. (laughs) Anyway, back to comics. That was a weird (laughs) tangent. That was a a freaky-ass tangent. Um, um, I think we'll start right out with with a a bit of reader mail. And this is from somebody we both know, our friend uh, Mike, Mike in Ontario. Who just reader showed, mail? You mean listener, listener, listener mail. mail? Well, they're they're readers. If you they're need the, to read. He's on the forum right now, so he's a reader too. He's just looking at the pictures. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Mike's my friend. I've been lending him Walking Dead comics, and I lent him, you know, basically my whole back run of walking dead so 50 some issues of them and of course he just you know as you do with walking dead you just plow right through them so he's now he's hooked on it and there's a well i'll, I'll just read his uh post on the on the forum here um starts out it always uh strokes my ego to get mentioned on your cast well there you go and here we are mentioning again so we'll puff up your head some more hey, like some places ball. charge for that stroking pal exactly so, you know. Consider yourself privileged. We would don't. Well, it's yet to be seen if you get a happy ending at, at this ego stroke. <coughs> anyway, <laughs> so he goes on to say, "I'm the guy the freaks discuss in the open minutes of number fifty-seven. I just have to reply on the topic of being slash not being into comics. As a kid, I did enjoy reading some comics, especially Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, but my favorite comics were the non-serialized horror comics like Creepy and Weird." So I guess I've been primed since way back then to enjoy the horror genre more than the superheroes. I don't I didn't have an allowance, so I had no access or desire for serialized comics, though there was a time when I could have would have loved getting into Fantastic Four. I admit I had a little Sue Storm fixation. Who didn't even and she was invisible most of the time. But Ben Grimm was my guy. What I never got was being down on someone else who was into comics. I understand the appeal, I just never got bitten by the comic bug. That is, until Walking Dead. <laughs> I can't believe how totally addicted I am to this book. When Chris loaned me issues 23 through 60 last week, it took me all of three evenings to read them all. Now I'm back to why I probably never got into comics. Now I have to wait a month or more for the next installment, which I will read in about 15 or 20 minutes, and then I'm back to waiting. The discontinuity in waiting makes me angry! Ask my wife. Whenever we sit down to watch a movie, I get irritated with too many interruptions, like her getting up to feed the cat, have a smoke, go to the bathroom for the third time in 90 minutes, and so forth. I couldn't imagine trying to read The Walking Dead one issue per month at a time. I know it's all about savoring the anticipation, but all it does is piss me off. I'm wired for absorption. You're like a human diaper, I guess, Mike. (laughs) <laughs> about the walking dead <laughs> Mike Cross, the human depends <laughs> that's what I was thinking actually the human depends about it's a t- new superhero <laughs> about t- yeah he soaks all the moisture out of his his enemies he about adds the- a whole new dimension to the absorbing man <laughs> exactly <laughs> anyway back to Mike 
about The Walking Dead. I'm really into writing and character. I'm really into the writing and character development. Kirkman is a master. All capital letters. I also like the fact that it's all in black and white, and I really appreciate the artwork. I'm not keeping count, but it seems to me there's more death being dealt by the surviving humans than by the zombies, and that aspect just kicks ass. Yes, it does. Watching sentient apes competing for scarce resources and becoming a whole lot less quote-unquote human along the way is endlessly fascinating. Kirkman's mantra seems to be quote-unquote nothing sacred, and I'm grateful for the mounting horror of the unpredictable. Has The Walking Dead made me a comic fan? Well, not really, but it's made me a Walking Dead fan. I must admit that I'm curious to check out Battle Pope and Invincible, but probably not enough to go spend money on them to satisfy my curiosity. Thanks again for the shout-outs, freaks, and keep up the good work. Well, we will keep up the good work, I guess. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, my advice to Mike, I put this in the forum, I don't know if he reads his replies in the forum, but I've got tons of comics where I've got whole runs of great stuff that you could read years worth of stuff just waiting for some Walking Deads to... I've Hate Comics yep. by Peter Bag. You'd love that stuff. All those Swamp Things. And if you read those Swamp Things, you could follow our Swamp Thing blow by blow. And uh, probably just in time for uh, when Alan Moore takes over. And uh, this guy Rick Vage, You'll love Rick Vage. Anyway, we could we could what? load you up with, with other comics that are... So, I highly recommend the exterminators. I think that's uh, that's something that he would really get into. Yeah, well, I, I think that's of a of a level you know comparable to uh, to Walking Dead. That mm-hmm. that's really that was a good good series. Well, I've known Mike for a long time, and I sort of know his tastes. And I know there's a lot of stuff there. Uh, there's a lot of comics out there that are that are tailored for his deviant mind. So. So they're they're out there. There's stuff you can be reading that's just as much fun as The Walking Dead, and you know, I mean, but you know, some of it's funny. <laughs> the Walking Dead isn't exactly funny, and if The Walking Dead's funny to you, I probably don't want to hang around you. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, <laughs> it's disturbing. There's been moments of humor in it, but literally that like brief flickering little moth light flames of humor anyway to, moving on we had uh scott and i sort of had a a little uh comic thing to go over here but it, it's it's a mutual thing but different we both have <laughs> two different fright night 3d comics which we mentioned in the last episode but i hadn't read mine so now i've read mine and we're gonna give a little our, our take on uh these two fright night comics you want to go first with you with uh with yours? Sure. Okay. Sure, I'll talk about it. it this was just—it was so bizarre because I didn't realize that there was more than one Fright Night 3D, but apparently so. This was uh, published back in '93 by the by the defunct uh, now defunct Now Comics, which I really liked Now Comics. You know, I, I don't—I I know that they're uh, they're kind of looked at fondly by people that you know read them at the time, and they were sort of goofy. They were a yeah. little goofy. Uh, the artwork was usually kind of cartoony, and and they were they were they were very. I th- to me, they seemed very sort of just like fan fanboy and and character people who followed. You know, they they tended to like to do stuff with copyrighted characters. You know, and 
Yeah, they got some big licenses. Yeah. I mean, they got Terminator, which was... Honestly, it was pretty sorry, but I bought it. I mean, I ate it up every month. I, I, I was getting the Terminator one that they put right. out. And uh, what else? They had Fright Night. Um, Green Hornet, which I never read, but I heard that that was actually pretty good. Just some different ones. But uh, anyway, I was I just thought it was so funny that, that you had actually got you know a Fright Night 3D annual, and I assumed at the time it was the same one, and then it turns out it's I actually... I know. It would, you would there, think. That's just so weird. It was it was a fluke because um, I I I bought on I think it was on your one of your many many hot hot eBay tips which if you hung out at our forum you'd be able to catch them Scott is I don't know where he gets the time but he finds some great deals on eBay and shares them with people which most people usually keep them as little guarded secrets, but I've gotten some good stuff. I would stuff. be so fucking broke if I bid and, on everything that I put up there. So I basically am yeah. passing along well, the great ones I just can't afford to bid on myself. Well, I, 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 got, I got this. It was um, for Star Wars 3D, and I got it for a song. I was the only bidder on it. I didn't have to, uh, you know, I, it was, maybe it was even a buy it now, but it was very cheap. It was like a couple bucks, you know, and, um, and I guess it's not, you know, and then there were other people there that had it up for, you know, a lot more money. And so I don't know why anybody, I guess nobody just wanted Star Wars 3D for any price except me. So great, I'll take it. And it came <laughs> with an extra comic thrown in and it was Fright Night 3D. So even for that lower price, they just, they probably were just like, let me get this out of the house and <laughs> and guaranteed themselves great feedback. That's for sure, I, you know. And it, and and it made it to my house in like inside of four days. So, how awesome is what an awesome transaction! So, so Scott's got the lucky charm on eBay. I've gotten a, uh, I've gotten a few good um, Star Marvel Star Wars comic lots from this that you know I got for a song. You know, averaging when you average the postage in there, you know, twenty five, thirty five, forty five cents a, a book. So. Another reason to go to our forum. There you go. Well, I got I got a kick out of this because I've had I don't know how many years I've had this book and it's just been sitting around in my vast unread pile because I've got just tons of shit that I've just not made the time to get to. And I guess the biggest reason I never read this was you know I read this the the Fright Night series back in the day, but at some point I, I, it just kind of petered out for me. I, I stopped collecting it because it just honestly it wasn't very good. But I did like the, the fact that most of the issues actually had um, Charlie and Peter from, you know, the Fright Night movies were the main characters and right. they, they were just, you know, fighting monsters in every, every different issue. But the cover on this is terrible, which is the biggest reason I never cracked it open and read it. It's just an awful awful cover <laughs> it's drawn strangely enough, i just realized it's drawn by tony caputo who was the publisher of now comics you know he was like the stan lee of now comics but the interior art's actually by a different team kevin west and uh this other guy john i guess it's pronounced stageland it's like strangeland but there's no r so it's stageland i guess but it the story is just wacky weird fun it, it involves these uh Harpies, which a harpy is, uh, it's basically like an eagle with a woman's face on it. So they're, yeah. they're fucking creepy, man. It's like this swarm of harpies have, have come to the town where 
Charlie and Peter live and are just like tearing everything up. And uh, it was just like a really bizarre, weird story. But it's one of the better ones I can remember from the Fright Night comic because they were very hit and miss. Usually if they were battling vampires, it was usually okay. But it's when they got into like – they had all these other weird monsters like sea monsters and just, you know – just odd, goofy, weird stuff, and, it, and that's when it got kind of silly, and it, it didn't really follow any sort right. of continuity or Fright anything from versus the movies. Sigmund the sea monster. Yeah, yeah, there was there was one like that where it was some sort of Sigmund type sea monster. Yeah, yeah. it was very uh, very goofy, but the 3D effect in this was pretty cool. You know, it came with a pair of 3D glasses and all that. And it was it was actually not bad, but the thing I got the biggest kick out of about this was, you know, this was an annual, so I have no idea what time of year it was published. There's no month on it or whatever. But the banner on the cover says Halloween Annual. Well, the story doesn't have a goddamn thing to do with Halloween. You know, I mean, usually a Halloween story, shouldn't it have something to do with Yeah, they should be Halloween? fighting some pumpkin head thing or something. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, so at least a mention of Halloween in the story. But the story doesn't play, take place at Halloween. There's no, like, go- ghosts and ghouls and goblins or anything. It's these goofy harpy things. So, but anyway, it was, it was fun. It was different. It was just some lighthearted, goofy shit to read to, to pass my time. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get on <laughs> to was... mine. Mine's, mine, the cover's okay on it. It's called The Resurrection of Dracula, and it has what you assume is Dracula doing the open mouth vampire clawed. Now, I'm going to try and be nice. It was readable. (laughs) The 3D was great. The 3D was very crisp and clear, but not used to a great effect. It has a couple nice, like a center poster pin-up type thing that's of Dracula luring in a um, hypnotized victim. And... But, you know, there's, there's, they don't use the 3D to a real pop-out effect, but it's nicely layered. You know what I mean? It's, it's, the layers are clean and crisp without anything really looking blurry for the most part. So it's a really nice 3D process. The art is okay. It's kind of kind of cartoony, but serviceable. It's um, Neil Vokes wrote the plot. And penciled it, and then it's uh, John Stangeland and someone named David Mowry did the inks, and Catherine Llewellyn wrote the story, and um, yeah, it, it starts out with Peter Peter Vincent it is um, reminiscing about you know his movie The Resurrection of Dracula, and he's acting kind of weird. He's he thinks he's Van Hels, you know, he sort of is telling that you know i am van helsing i am my character i you know by being by acting van helsing i am van hell and they're like he's been acting weird since he's been taking these acting classes at this place and it's like peter vincent's taking acting classes (laughs) (laughs) you know that's a lot of character but he's taking acting classes and long long convoluted story short He's taking acting classes with this charismatic guy who's sort of a hypnotist who's got who hypnotizes all of his students. He mesmerizes them and, you know, to make them really, you know, believe in their subconscious that they're their characters. So they're sort of like brainwashed. All the all the women are sort of in love with him and isn't he dreamy and and um 
uh, what's the the lead fe- the lead female character in this goes go you know goes I'm gonna take the class and figure out what's going on and she meets a guy and she's like oh he's so handsome and is immediately like drawn in and this guy is what he's doing is putting on like the ultimate performance of stage performance of Peter Vincent's resurrection of Dracula you know and all the people in their minds are um believing they're the part so they're actually acting they think they're in the movie so you know it all takes place in a period so you have all the characters from Fright Night in like Drac you know and outside of Dracula's castle in the village and they're in their period costumes except sometimes they'll have glasses on you know modern glasses or stuff like that and uh what happened the twist is it's a pretty cool twist it's so far it's it's a, a pretty neat idea the execution is so <laughs> what happens is evil ed gets wind of this and they they oh, think evil ed's in it yeah they think evil ed has something to do with it so just to screw with him they go in his apartment and leave all this garlic and he goes into his apartment and is like puking and all pissed off that they left garlic so he's like why are they fucking with me i'm going to find out what's going on so so evil ed finds out this guy's plan and um he goes in and he bites the actor who's playing dracula so dracula actually becomes a real vampire the the actor who's playing dracula so in the subconscious thing dracula's now if dracula bites you you're going to become a vampire for real because the actor who's playing it is, you know, running around in, in real life. And, so, you know, this is where it stops making any kind of sense how it's, you know, <laughs> from going happening inside their mind to actually having an effect on reality, you know. But that's, you know, that's the story. So at the end of it, the, the whole plot is, you know, Evil Ed is scared off and the whole plot is foiled and Peter Vincent stakes the actor who plays Dracula and kills him. And okay, let me let me um, read the end. so so it ends at a happy ending. You know, everybody's you know out of their dream of being in the Dracula movie, and no, and the lead girl has not been turned into a vampire. But it ends. <laughs> the last four frames are Peter Vincent being taken off to jail, and it's a news <laughs> report. He's being taken off. One man is dead tonight and several others injured during what appears to have been a failed experiment in mind control. 60s actor Peter Vincent has been charged with the murder of close friend and peer Boris Christopher, who looks like Christopher Lee, after allegedly stabbing him in the chest with a wooden stake. When asked what went wrong, Vincent was quoted as saying that Newbaum had brainwashed them into believing that they were characters in the 60s cult classic The Resurrection of Dracula and ultimately into believing in vampires. Based on evidence gathered so far, Police Chief Gates believed this to be true. He stated that Vincent, with, a, with the help of a good lawyer, could get suspended sentence if he pleads temporary insanity. And then the last shot is Evil Ed sitting in his apartment with a bunch of girls going, Insane? Definitely. Temporary? Not. And then the girls going, Eddie, you are way cool. What the fuck? <laughs> That's how it ends? <laughs> Peter Vincent being taken away and people joking about it. That's the end of it. He's being taken to jail. It's like, ah, oh, well, he'll be let off for murder. 
<laughs> so, so you'll get a good was... lawyer and he won't go to jail. He's an actor. It's... <laughs> I guess it's sort of funny in a social commentary way, but I don't think they made it as like a commentary on um, Phil Spector or, some, you know, or something like or somebody famous who killed somebody. It's just sort of tossed off at the end. It's like, oh, well. <laughs> ah, so this this story doesn't continue somewhere? No, that's the it's... end of it. That's the end of oh it. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's how it resolves. <laughs> I don't know if in the in the series... My, mine isn't an annual. It's just a double-sized Dracula special. Ah. And it has, it has no number. It just says Fall 1992 on it. So, and it has an ad on the back for Green Hornet. But, um, so I don't know if it's in continuity with the stories or if it's just a, uh, it seems to be just a standalone for the 3D comic. Ay, ay, ay. (laughs) It's a fun, it's a fun read, but Jesus Christ, it's some, it's some pretty shabby writing. Well, you just you just summed up a whole hell of a lot of now comics. Yeah, with that, you know, because that that sadly that that seemed to be kind yeah. of the case for a maybe, lot of the maybe, stuff they were putting out. It was kind of shabby. It's it's maybe maybe for a younger audience, but there's some swearing in it and some like sexual overtone too, since it's a vampire, you know, and and there's some booby ladies in it and stuff too. So it's weird who it you know who it was actually supposed to appeal to, but. Me. That was con- that was <laughs> comics at that time too. So I mean that the s- s- shelves were stocked with stuff like this mm-hmm. back then. So they were churning it out. That's for sure. Yeah, that now stuff. You know, for a while in the beginning, it sold like crazy because I remember that Terminator number one. I had umpteen copies of it and sold every one of them for a good chunk of change because that was uh, that was quite the little collectible there for a oh. while. But I think it was just simply because it was a Terminator comic, and up to that point, there'd never been one before. Anything, but, yeah, you know, so it was once kind people of started to read it, they started to realize that it kind of yeah. sucked. Well, there was a lot of excitement because <laughs> Terminator, because all those licenses—Terminator, Aliens, Predator, Aliens versus Predator—all started showing up in comic mm-hmm. form around that time. And the Alien comics were—I've—I've I've read a few of them, and they were what. Pretty well written, but they were usually, for the most part, really nice art. They usually yep. got really good artists for them, so those were, were really good. The other ones were sort of up and down, and I remember always passing on them a lot of times. By they always seemed like they might have been a little cheaped out. Well, I've I've still to this day maintained that uh, Alien Three, the movie Alien Three, should have just been an adaption of that first Alien miniseries because man that was good good, that was really really good and it and it serviced the character of newt a hell of a lot better than the movie did where they killed her off in the friggin credits of the movie that was just that was just unforgivable but yeah fright night 3d there you go um so what else do we have oh yeah we're going to dragon con it looks like there's yeah. all sorts of fun people going to be there. Kate Mul- Mulgrew, Mulgrew, yeah, she's going to be there. Leonard Nimoy going to be there. We're going to have Patrick Stewart there making Patrick it so. Stewart. Alan Dean Foster. Uh, Alan Dean Foster. Now that I'm more excited. I I didn't know that. 
just dropped that one on me. Man, I'm more excited about that now than anybody yep. else. That's great, man. I'm bringing my Splinter of the Mind's Eye with me. Hell yeah. Oh, that would be sweet, sweet, sweet. I'm going to have him lick the inside cover of it so I have his DNA <laughs> attached to the book. <laughs> and then I'm going to seal it in an airtight chamber and place a guard around it and a laser beam. Well, who do and, we who do we know is coming for sure? We know Green Cap's coming. Isn't Fleabeard coming too? Probably. They're 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 good buddies, so I'm hoping that they they both show up. And, and then, uh, uh, we got some of the the local Atlanta boys. I'm I'm pretty sure is, are gonna are gonna show up to that. I don't I don't want to give out names just because you know just in case they're not coming. But I'm pretty sure you know the the local. Uh, yeah, I want to know. Georgia who, regulars are coming. Anybody who's listening, are you coming? Tell us. We'll meet up with you. We'll get a whole freak brigade down there. Yeah. We'll we'll beat up the five zero first. <laughs> we we could be the ah uh, oh shit. What was that? What was that dragon? That savage dragon spinoff freak force. That was it. We'll Ooh. have a freak. We'll form a freak force. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be I'm the new freak it. force. I'm liking it, especially not, since we're the heads of the freak force. There you go. That's Image what, isn't using the title anymore, so we'll take it. We'll 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 create the freak force. But yeah, I know I do. I want to know who's going to this thing. I'm I'm hoping to uh, to see you know to be able to put some faces to the the forum names and that yeah, sort of. Yeah, that'd be really cool. So, yeah, it's in uh, in Atlanta. What is it? It's like September. What is it? Fourth through the seventh or something, something like, like that. that. It's a weekend. Yeah, in September. So go on the forum or drop us an email or something. Let us know if you guys are planning to attend because we want to see your we want to see your faces. We'll make it worth your while in freak value if you come come visit us at <laughs> at Dragon Con. Scott and I haven't had a chance to wind each other up in person in a long time, a long <laughs> so it time. could be dangerous. A so you might want to watch that. Bring your video. Bring video cameras. You might get some good stuff to put on YouTube. <laughs> It'll be legendary. Yeah, the this, this stuff of myth and legend. Yeah. <laughs> so, get on our forum. Write us at two two freaks dot two two freaks at gmail dot com and tell us if you're coming. Tell us who you are. Send us a eight by ten glossy picture so we can be looking for you. We'll carry a little card with your name on it, like they do at the airport. <laughs> All right. So, what else have we got? What else have we got? You got we some... got Superman Family One Night. We got the July August 1978 issue cover by Rich Buckler, who, by the way, is one of my favorite Superman artists and one of the great unsung Superman artists, in my opinion. Um, inks on the cover, anyway, by uh, Dick Giordano. And in this issue, presenting a Superman Family novel. That's how they that's how they advertise it in this one. Now this issue has all the regular features, you know, like like the issues before it, you know, all the standard guys are are here. But what I like about this one, what I wish they all did, or at least did more often, what this issue does, it links them all together in one giant coherent continuing storyline. Unfortunately, that means I did have to read a Jimmy Olsen story, but, you know, at least it counted for something. It plays into the whole, you know, the whole rest of the book. So we start off the issue, you know, with the Jimmy Olsen thing. 
by uh, Tom DeFalco, Kurt Schaffenberger on our uh, text. I still don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. Blydell, Bly, I guess, on the inks. Um, the uh, extremely goofy-looking uh, King Cougar gang bust, busts into the Daily Planet looking for Jimmy Olsen. And they start tearing up the place when Jimmy, you know, he just happens to come into the newsroom. I guess he was late for work or something. I don't know. They never really explain why he's there, you know, after everybody else. But anyway... He manages to take all these guys out, which I, I don't know how I feel about that. You know, the whole Jimmy Olsen always kicking everybody's ass thing. Anyway, I while he the got uh, laid last time and now he's well, yeah, ass he, you know, they're trying to they're trying to man him up, you know. But still, you know, when he, he when you look like Jimmy Olsen looks, you just don't really speak action hero to me you know what i mean but i don't know it's neither here nor there i'm just i've got redhead prejudice i guess is what it is the the redhead freckled thing just doesn't yeah. i don't know it's like potsy or whatever the hell what was the guy from Ralph, was it potsy on Ralph happy days Ralph. yeah that was it right can you see him as like uh in predator or something you know what no. I, you know what i mean yeah exactly it, it just don't work bruce so willis anyway. is jimmy olsen <laughs> yeah, you exactly. I just all right. Anyway. So the uh, you know, the rest of the the newsroom staff, you know, they all recover from this attack and everything. Jimmy gets a call from his dad, who looks a hell of a lot to me like a cross between like Archie and Colonel Sanders. He's got this really weird look going on. And I and you know, give me I some chicken did... meathead. <laughs> now again, this was an issue I read as a kid. But I don't remember ever seeing Jimmy's father before, so it was kind of it was kind of neat to see him, even though he's got this just the strangest look going on. Anyway, he he's on the phone, he's whining basically, he's asking Jimmy, you know, why don't you ever come visit me? When are you going to come visit me in Hartsdale? And you know, I haven't seen him in, in months, and blah blah blah. And all of a sudden, the call gets cut off, and Jimmy can't reconnect, you know, on the phone to his dad, or as it turns out, to anybody else in all of Hartsdale. So. He smells a rat. He takes a newscopter to investigate. And when he gets there, he finds that the whole town is just gone. It's missing. And there's nothing left but some kind of like unnatural filler or something in the ground where the town ought to be. So Jimmy wonders if Brainiac might be behind this. You know, maybe he, he shrunk it again. You know, he's back to his city shrinking antics or something. He sees this wild rabbit and it jumps out of a, uh, a floating dimensional rip. So he goes over, he starts to investigate it in this like bucket headed alien guy in what looks a hell of a lot like a Robin costume comes out of the rip and he fires at Jimmy and Jimmy again, you know, he, he takes out this armed bad guy and, you know, I, I just, I gotta say, you know, I can, I can buy abducted towns and dimensional rifts and bucket headed aliens and all that. But this Jimmy Olsen ass kicking hero thing, it just, it just gets old, you know, it just, it's like, come on. So anyway, he, uh, you know, of course he's knocked the guy out. So he steals his outfit. He disguises himself as this alien and he goes through the riff and he discovers basically like a cross between like, an intergalactic zoo and like world showcase at Epcot or something. It's like the place is a, uh, is a tourist attraction showcasing literally like slices of life from like all these different planets and, and time eras 
Although I noticed that a lot of them actually look to be from Earth in all different time periods. I, I don't know why. It's like a lot of them are from Earth, but they're supposed to represent like a bunch of different planets. But anyway, it's not long before, you know, Jimmy gets discovered and the aliens, you know, they tackle him and everything. And as he goes down, he activates his signal watch and he throws it through the dimensional rift to summon Superman. So then we cut to the Superman portion of the book by Jerry Conway, uh, art again by uh, Schaffenberger, and Dan, Dan Adkins uh, assisting on the art. Superman, uh, he's dropping Lois Lane off in the Bottle City of Candor, where she's going to interview, interview the uh, Golden Age superhero TNT, which I thought was kind of cool. It was nice to see him again. I didn't realize he was ever had anything to do with Superman or Candor or anything like that, so that was kind of neat. The story is somehow ties into Super Friends number 12, which I don't own, so I don't know what the story is on that. But I'd love to read it just to find out what, what's the whole deal with TNT being in the Bottle City. Anyway, Superman, uh, you know, he hears Jimmy's signal watch and uh, flies off to find out what's going on. He finds the watch and the rift, and he decides he's going to go through it uh, where... For some reason, I totally did never understood in this story. They never explain it. He goes through the same rift in the same place that Jimmy did, but he doesn't wind up in the same place. Um, and instead, he's got to like battle through all these freaky dimensions trying to find Jimmy, and which really just it just drags the shit out of this story. It's like page upon page of all these weird alien dimensions and stuff as, as Superman literally just runs into different characters and fights his way through all these dimensions. And it, it really feels like filler more than anything. It doesn't do anything for the story. Um, but in the meantime, while all that's going on, we get, uh, you know, Lois interviewing uh, TNT back in Candor and suddenly the entire city gets literally beamed out of the bottle. So Superman, you know, he finally gets to the right dimension. He battles his way in and he's suddenly in Candor. Now, from the way the picture is drawn and the angles and everything, it looks like he's literally like hundreds of feet in the air when he arrives in Candor, which, you know, of course, back in this age, you know, when he would go from like a yellow sun to a red sun, his powers would just cut out. So his powers cut out and it, there's a panel of him like slamming to the ground on his back. But he ought, he ought to be dead from the fall. He ought to be just he a took, little you know? mound of jello. <laughs> yeah, he should be a super splat on the ground at this point. But you know, you gotta forgive an awful lot of stuff in these old in these old stories. So you know, I'm letting it go, I guess. But you know, in, in all logic, he he should just be you know nothing but a smear on the ground from the fall that he took. So we cut to Lois Lane or the, the Lois Lane portion of the book at this point by uh, Tom DeFalco. Really nice art by uh, Wynn Mortimer and Frank Cher Cheramonte. I'm not even sure how you pronounce this guy's name. Cheramonte? Cheramont? I'm not sure. Anyway, Lois, uh, you know, she runs out from the interview with TNT. She goes outside uh, to investigate. Uh, when she comes across, you know, the Superman, you know, he's powerless and bruised and battered and bleeding and everything from, you know, the fall that he took and everything. And the aliens behind all this detect her presence, you know, the presence of a, of a non-Kryptonian life form. So they dispatch a purifier that's going to eliminate Lois Lane. Nightwing and Flamebird, um, they defend Lois 
while Superman, he literally thinks to himself, you know, without my superpowers, there isn't much I can do. And I'm thinking, what? What a pussy. You're Superman, you know? I mean, he's supposed to be a superhero. You know, he's supposed to be heroic whether he's got powers or not. You know, Nightwing and Flamebird, they don't have any powers. And, you know, they rush right to her defense. So, you know, and and I thought he was supposed to love Lois Lane. You know, he's supposed to, you know do whatever for her and always rescue her. Anyway, he, he literally he just stands back and lets other people rush in to defend his woman. So very strange moment with Superman. Nightwing and Flamebird, they can't stop the purifier. Superman finally snaps out of his funk and, and he takes a shot at it. He gets an utter beat down by this thing. Um, and Lois finally puts up you know a fight, but she can't stop the thing either. And the uh, purifier dissolves her gravity boots, so she gets crushed to the ground and captured. You know, she was wearing special boots to to counteract the the heavier gravity of uh, of Candor. You know, and that's uh, another kind of sticking point to the story is is the thing capturing Lois. You know, the thing was dispatched to eliminate her. So why it, why carry her off to a cell? Now I hate it when the bad guys do shit like this in stories it's like you know the old batman tv show you know they'd come up with these big elaborate stupid death traps that they'd put you know batman and robin into and then you know they'd explain everything about the plan and what was going on and then they'd leave to like i don't know go watch tv or something and and leave them to like figure out a way to to get out of the trap you know if your intent is to just shoot them you know or i mean to to kill them rather just i fucked that up if your intent is to kill them, just shoot them in the head. You know, I mean, if you're really serious about wanting them eliminated, I, I don't get the the whole thing with, you know, oh, I've been dispatched to kill you, so I'm going to take you to a holdings. I just don't get it. So anyway, she she gets taken to this cell. She finds out that Jimmy Olsen is her cellmate, which, you know, at this point, I'd rather they just killed me if I were her. But see, he uh, brings her up to speed on what's been going on up to this point. And a dissectoid, I love that name, dissectoid arrives and he's going to you know, cut them up and study them. They end up getting the upper hand on the thing, though, and, uh, and they escape from their cell, in which case the purifier returns and it's going to recapture them. And they actually manage to destroy it. And they steal this hover platform thingy that the purifier was getting around on. And... Uh, we, we cut to a thing with the aliens that are in charge of all this going on, and they contact Lois and Jimmy uh, by the radio that's built into the hovercraft thing, and they tell them that if they don't stop fucking around with their museum, that they're going to destroy the Earth in 41.5 minutes. You know, so suddenly the, the story took a serious, dramatic turn, right? So, you know, what did Lois and Jimmy do? You know, they, all, all the aliens want them to do is cut the shit and leave, right? They're, they're, they're basically, they're contaminating the Kryptonian section of their display model because they're Earth people. So rather than, like, talk about it or, or you know, decide, all right, well, we don't want to endanger the Earth or anything, they, they set out to go, you know, to hop through dimensional rifts. They're going to find their way back to Candor, And I'm, I'm like, why? And why, why don't they just leave and stop endangering the Earth? So anyway, then we cut to the, uh, the crypto portion of the book. Um, this one's written by Bob Toomey, art by uh, Juan Ortiz. 
And the art's really nice and everything, but this was one of those portions I was like, wow, is, is this just shoehorned in because Crypto just needed to have his time in the in the spotlight in this issue or what? But we get um you know, we see Crypto and you know, remember he was abducted at the end of the last issue and he's teleported into Candor. And the aliens, they basically want to get all the surviving Kryptonians in one place to fill out this display. So Superman, Nightwing, Flamebird, um, they all put their heads together and they figure out that this dimensional barrier holding them in the city is really just some sort of mental mind whammy thing put there by the aliens and that it only affects them. It doesn't affect crypto at all. I I don't know if it's because he's a dog or he's not as smart or what the deal is, but it it doesn't do anything to him. So they rig up crypto with some special uh, gear and they instruct him to find the machine generating the barrier and destroy it. Now, my dog doesn't understand when I say things like don't lick your ass in the living room, but crypto understands instructions like, you know, go find the generator machine and blow it up. But I don't know. I I don't quite get the whole thing with crypto anyway. He's a hell of a lot smarter than actually most of the humans in these stories. Uh, Even though he's from Krypton, his brain isn't like still as proportionally smaller than Superman's, so he should be proportionally dumber. Yeah, you would think. I don't. I. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he has some pretty. He should uh, be stronger. As a matter of fact, I don't think actually our son makes Superman smart any necessarily any smarter. I think back in these stories, it may have actually. I think. I think in the in the uh, you know this pre-crisis continuity. I think actually. Uh, I don't know about all Kryptonians and all things Kryptonian, but I think Superman actually was supposed to have like a super intelligence as one of his, you know, yellow sun given powers, if you know what I mean. But I'm not, you know, now that I say that I'm going to have to look that up to see if I'm if if I'm right about that. But I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he got everything from, you know, super strength to super friggin ventriloquism. So I wouldn't be surprised if super smarts were part of the part of the bargain too I, I just don't know but i you know the thing with crypto i mean he's just a little too smart you know he's like a he's really just a person in dog form in these stories i mean they talk to him like he's a member of the team and that like he understands perfect english and the whole it's just really weird to see people talking to this dog you know and and saying more than just you know what Timmy fell down the well, you know, it's like detailed instructions about how to go destroy a dimensional barrier thing. You know, it's just wacky. But anyway, they send him off. He does the same thing Superman did. He goes through all these weird dimensions and all this stuff. But he does eventually um, happen across Lois and Jimmy. You know, they're on that flying platform thing. Meanwhile, um, you know, back in the uh, Nightwing and Flamebird section of the book, this was my favorite part of the whole thing, by the way, was uh, written by Paul Cooperberg, uh, Ken Landgraf, and Romeo Tangal on the art. Um, this this was just the best. And, and the reason that this story always uh, ha- had a special place for me, we get General Zod and Jack Sewer and uh, Professor uh, Vacox and Cruel and just, just about all the other uh, – Phantom Zone prisoners, they all appear in the night cave and they attack Nightwing, Flamebird, and Superman. Now, they've been set free by the aliens because, again, you know, they want all their surviving Kryptonians in one place to fill out their special zoo 
thingy, their their display, and uh, they uh, they put a serious beat down on all the heroes, uh, Superman included, and then they escape out into the city. And while this is going on, the separatists um, have come to the police, and they they basically they offer to put aside their differences and offer you a united front against these aliens that have abducted Candor. Uh, and so a special meeting is called to decide on basically an action plan when Zod and the other Phantom Zoners, they all break in. And uh, Flamebird, he basically challenges them to some sort of like one-on-one championship fight. You know, they can choose their own champion and, and they'll, you know he'll fight against them. So there's this great like whole one page sequence of Flamebird and Jaxor from the Phantom Zone just duking it out with each other. And Flamebird, uh, you know, he pummels the guy, of course. And now all of Kandor, you know, thanks to this fight and everything, you know, they're all united. You know, they're going to offer a united front against the aliens. Except sudden, you know, Superman suddenly remembers, you know, well, where's Supergirl and her parents? So. In the pulse-pounding finale to the story, you know, it all gets told in the Supergirl section of the book by uh, Jack C. Harris, Jack Abel, and Frank uh, Giacoa. Supergirl and her folks are using the giant key to get into the Fortress of Solitude. And when they arrive, they find, you know, the, the bottle's empty. The Candor's been abducted. Supergirl gets the trouble alert or whatever it is, you know, the, the special signal. Um, that she's being contacted and it's president Jimmy Carter informing her that Hartsdale has disappeared. So again, you know, again, with the leaps of logic here, Supergirl, you know, her, her, her town, you know, this candor has just, you know, been abducted. It's missing from the bottle, but instead of dealing with that, she takes off for Hartsdale Somehow making the connection that, you know, it must all have all to do with itself, which I don't know. I find that kind of a a tenuous thread of logic. But anyway, um, she goes to, you know, the site of where Hardsteel should be and she finds nothing but the rift again. So she goes through it. Doesn't take her to the same place as Jimmy Olsen either. Um, But she does eventually meet up with Jimmy, Lois and Crypto. They all work together, and they find the rift that takes them all to Kandor, and they send Crypto through it. And he brings Superman to their side. And then once he's there, his superpowers kick back in for what, whatever reason. I don't know. They never say. But he's got his superpowers back. So he and Supergirl, they widen the rift so that Nightwing, Flamebird, and all these Phantom Zone guys can all come through it together. And then once they're all together, you know, there's really, you know, it's pretty cool then because you've got this, you know, really awe-inspiring team all together. And they're, um, you know, they all smash in on the aliens, where the aliens are that are that are running the show and this whole thing. They tear up the place and smash all their equipment and they're just basically just, you know, running, running rampant. And they transport every place and everybody that was in the zoo back to where they naturally belong. Um, you know, which is pretty cool. It's pretty nice of them to do that, except the Phantom Zoners, man, they get royally fucked in this story because they get projected back into the Phantom Zone, you know, even though they helped out. So, you know, in fairness, though, you know, there really isn't one panel at all showing them actually helping the heroes out at all, you know, that that they're not actually helping bust up 
the alien racket or anything. They're, they're present in the big team shot of them showing them running into the building. And then the next time you see them, they're back in the phantom zone. So, you know, it was implied that they were part of the, of the team going in to stop the aliens, but it never actually showed them doing anything. And there had been a panel where, you know, Jack Sewer was thinking to himself and he was planning to basically try to take over Candor and the earth as soon as this alien threat was stopped. So, you know, I can't feel too bad for them. I, I guess they did get what, what they deserve, but the panel of them being back in the Phantom Zone and realizing they got screwed is just hilarious. So Supergirl and Superman, they put the uh, finishing destruction on the uh, aliens museum thing and everything gets restored to normal. Jimmy finally gets to visit his dad in Hicksburg and uh, Lois. She about gives Perry White a heart attack when she just literally pops in out of thin air with her fantastic scoop. And Supergirl, she gets to see her parents safely home to Candor and all that. And Crypto rejoins Ed, Lace, Ed Lacey, the hobo detective. And that's pretty much the end of Superman Family 190. This series will eventually wrap with Superman number 194. That's the last adventures of uh, the Candorian Nightwing and Flamebird in the pages of Superman Family. So stay tuned for that. And there came a day, a day unlike any other, when Earth's mightiest heroes and heroines found themselves united against a common threat. On that day, the Avengers were born to fight the foes no single superhero could withstand. Through the years, their roster has prospered, changing many times, but their glory has never been denied. Heed the call then, for now, the Avengers Assemble! The Avengers Assemble Podcast. Available now at AvengersAssemblePodcast.Libson.com The Saga of the Swamp Thing. Okay, we're back. And now it is time for Saga of the Swamp Thing number five. Yes, well, this one uh, takes place pretty much right at right after the last issue. Um, uh, Swampy wakes up and he's in the back of the ambulance that they've trundled in, into to take him to the Sunderland Corporation, and uncharacteristically, he's in like a lot of pain. He's you know he's sustained a lot of injuries, but he usually doesn't feel any pain. But now he's kind of hurting from it. So. Uh, um, they're going up this you know character you know stereotype winding road up to a mountaintop compound that when they get up to it it's called the Barclay Clinic and it's run by Sunderland Corporation and he overhears the drivers talking that you know Liz Tremaine called in that that they had this to uh, Sunderland that they had the swamp thing so they're bringing him there and just as they're about to like enter the gate he hears like these blood curdling screams coming from inside you know the compound of people in just agony so he kicks out the back door and uh begins battling the security guards as you know more screams come echoing out of this place so meanwhile back in arkansas liz is uh talking to uh sheriff andy taylor and she finds out that her producer paul is uh disappeared with the little mute girl Casey and she just assumes that he's going back you know to their home base and going to put her on the news show 
So she just sort of blows it off, but she says, well, I'm going to look for him. And the, the sheriff, you know, is sort of interested in what's going on, but he's, he's sort of satisfied because the child killer has been caught, so he doesn't really care. So back at, back to Swamp Thing, somehow the security guards have gotten him into a straitjacket and are wrestling him around, and they shoot him up with the same drug that Harry K used earlier, spraying him with to knock him out, and they sort of sedate him. And uh, speaking of Harry Kay, we see him sort of, uh, we cut back to a, like a week before and we see him crawling out of the embers and, you know, still smoldering remains of the fire that we saw him supposedly perish in. And uh, he's basically burned to a crisp. He's just a big, red, raw, flabby human, you know, scar. But somehow he's slowly healing and and regenerating. So he, he, he finds a dime on the ground and he calls quote-unquote special services and, uh, you know, they, they realize he's been considered dead but they hear his voice print and so they realize it's him and they order him to go to the Barclay Clinic immediately because they have the swamp thing. So at the clinic, Alec wakes up in a, in a hospital room and uh, he meets uh, young Dr. Dennis Barclay who assures him that the clinic means him no harm, that they, you know, they didn't even know that he was a mutated human. They just thought he was a monster and, you know, they want to help him. And, uh, they're doing secret research and, uh, he shows Alec a trick where he passes his hand over all Alec's wounds and heals them by touching them or just sort of passing his hands over. And he claims that, uh, he was, uh, a psychic healer. Now, meanwhile, they're being watched through a two-way mirror by some Sunderland employees who, uh, you know, who are talking to each other, and they reveal that Harry's sort of manipulating Barkley for his own ends, and, uh, you know, so they're keeping track of everything on the sly. So they walk out of the room, and they don't hear Barkley. He tells Alec about how Harry Kay found him in Switzerland, and, uh, and uh, he was a psychic healer, and Bar- and Kay found him and said, "Hey, you know, I want you to run this clinic." And then so Alex says, "You know, I don't know. You may think Harry Kay's this really nice guy, but uh, he tried to kill me and this little girl." And Barkley says, "Well, on this, I got to sleep on this new information, and I'll get back to you." So that night, Alex wakes up again, but you know, from hearing more hideous, agonized screams. And so he goes to his window, and his windows are barred, and his door's locked from the outside, but, you know, he's a swamp thing, so he just rips the door off the hinges, you know, tears the doorknob off, and off he goes. And uh, so Liz arrives at the um, Barclay Clinic, and Dennis meets her, and they're going in a golf cart, and he sort of catches her up on what's going on. And, um, you know, he sort of accuses her of being in on the whole thing with Sunderland, and she's like, well, I don't really, you know, I don't really know much about Sunderland, but I, you know, I want to help the swamp creature. And they also hear a scream, and that sort of triggers her radar. Meanwhile, Alex has followed the scream to a door marked, of course, do not enter, which he smashes it down, and he finds, like, a bald, naked human guy with the wounds, exactly like the wounds that he used to have before Dennis healed him. So as he's looking out in horror, you see that a couple security guards are lurking up behind him. So Dennis is back back with Liz and Dennis. He admits to her that, you know, he kind of finds the scream suspicious, but they're in a, in a hospital where people are hurt, so he's sort of written it off on that. But, um, 
you know, he says, really, Kay's running the place and that he's just a figurehead. So meanwhile, Alec has found dozens of these male and female, bald, scarred, you know, humanoids that are in a sort of semi-coma, but they're suffering and, you know, they're covered with all sorts of wounds and diseases. And uh, there seem to be, and, you know, he starts putting it together that there seems to be just about one of these for every patient at the clinic. So he's starting to put two and two together when he's, you know, you see somebody shoves a gurney into him and sort of body slams him into another gurney. Meanwhile, Dennis and Liz are starting to realize that they're being played uh, when a guard breaks into the room and tells Dennis that the Swamp Thing's escaped and is sort of running amok down in the in level one. So, uh, you know, he's beating up some security guards. So, you know, they, they, they run off and Dennis bursts in and, and sort of calls off the guards, off Alec, and is like, you know, let's calm down and start seeing what's going on there. And uh, so Dennis realizes that something, you know, bad is up. So he basically pulls rank on the guard and gets Liz and the Swamp Thing out of there. And Liz hands the Swamp Thing a note from Dennis telling him, you know, hey, we, we there's danger here. Just follow our lead and we'll get out of here. So they they leave and go to like an examining room and Dennis sort of gives the Swamp Thing a little examination and determines, yeah, he's he's dying, his tissue's degenerating and meanwhile Liz sneaks out and steals an ambulance and they're gonna sneak off in it but first they go to the lab and Dennis unhooks all the people from the machines that have them in the semi-coma to let them go. Well, they wake up and uh, the one that looks like Harry Kay uh, sort of confronts him and tells him, you know, you've woken us up, but we're in agonizing pain now. And that's just when Harry Kay shows up, evil villain style, you know, with a pulled gun and starts, you know, spilling the beans of, of what's going on. And that's that these people are called receptors. They're sort of test tube people, I'm assuming maybe clones of, of actual Sunderland employees that are empathic. So they're linked to the people that they're copies of, and they absorb their injuries and illnesses so Sunderland employees don't ever have to miss a day of work. And uh, so Swampy's pissed off about this, so of course he throttles Harry Kay. He picks him up by the neck, and Harry Kay doesn't really care because all the pain is being absorbed by his receptor who's, you know, flopping around on the floor holding his throat, Darth Vader style. So, um... The beings that take this opportunity to sort of charge Harry Kay and the guards and in the chaos Liz, Dennis, and Alex escape in the ambulance and smash out through the front gate. Uh, the receptors have sort of surrounded all these Sunderland employees around a helicopter pad where they're getting ready to get the hell out of Dodge and um, all of a sudden they announce that they also have the power to send all their injuries right back to the receptors. So they start just blasting back all their injuries back to the people who originally had them. Now, somehow, Harry Kay escapes from this unharmed in the, in the helicopter. And yeah, that, that right there, I'm sorry to interrupt how, you, that right there doesn't make any no, sense. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a shot of his hand. You assume it's his hand because it looks like it's being consumed by burns. So you think he's just going to get burned up like he used, was. That's sort of how they portray it. And then the next thing you know, he's flying away in a helicopter, and he's on the radio with headquarters, and they're like, you know, head to the head to the backup plan, on the, and uh, we'll meet you on the SS Haven, which you assume is a boat somewhere. 
and uh, Alec, Liz, and Dennis now are realizing that they're all fugitives, and they decide to go off, and their their next plan of attack is to find Casey and Paul, and that's where we leave it, with them on the road as fugitives, and Harry Kay withdrawing, and um, we assume the rest of the Sunderland employees melted and, and contorting in pain from their receptors. And that's about that. I... Not a big fan of this. This is my least favorite of all of them so far. I mean, I liked it okay, but the the thing that kind of ruined it for me was the thing with Harry Kay getting yeah. away at the end because evidently they didn't stop to think. Now it's a yawning, what, huge what, plot hole. What the hell state are they in? Where are they in this story? Are they in Arkansas or where? I didn't. I really... believe they're in another state because there's an actual panel that says, "Meanwhile, in Arkansas, back in Arkansas." Right. Yeah. So they're well, in anyway, some other state, but Harry K, his battle with Swamp Thing didn't that take place in like Limbo, North Carolina, or somewhere? Right. I mean, what well, my my point is that you know he simply hops in a helicopter and just flies away. Well, he was sending his pain to these receptor guys from another friggin' state, so why couldn't they use their power and send it right back to him into a helicopter that's hovering just a couple hundred feet away? You know, why yeah, Why was I, he able to escape only, simply by The only thing off? I can think of is when Alec throttled him that he killed or knocked out his receptor. So Harry K's receptor wasn't amongst those ones that were retransmitting. But that still doesn't preclude him from doing it at any point in time. There doesn't seem to be any distance different, you know. There doesn't seem to be a factor of difference. It seems like wherever Harry K goes, he can heal himself. So, yeah, his receptor, unless he died when Alec Holland did that, which that opens up another whole can of worms. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just it's just dropped. It's just like... You know, and it's done right at the end of the episode, at the end of the issue. So basically, it, you know, basically in the mind of the reader, I think it'll be dropped a little bit by the next episode, you know, or the next issue because it'll just pick up on the new story, you know. Right. And it's just, yeah, it's another, it's another very word heavy, very um, exposition heavy, right, um, issue which takes a bite out of the artwork because there's just so much panel space taken up by um text <laughs> and dialogue and they could probably and they could have they could have cut it in half you know mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, and and as you said in an earlier episode it's of, of the comics of those times there's, there's a lot of exposition and there's a lot of summing up of the story and and since every issue at this point has been so exposition heavy and and dense a lot of story in one issue that when they when they have to recap the last one it takes up a good chunk of the next one yes so it's just <laughs> like it's like the snowball effect you know of of each character having an internal monologue summing up the last issue so eh, and and it works for the most part in this in this comic, except in this issue, I just don't think the empath, the 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 the, the monsters in this one were just not that plausible or exciting, or they could have been. They could have been really creepy. It was sort of like the clone yeah. horror or something, but it was just sort of 
yeah, it, it didn't have enough time in development for it to be creepy, and it, you know, you just find out about them at the end, and then it's over. It's another thing where I think they really could have benefited by stretching these stories out on yes. for two, two, two issues, and and you know, they're not thin; they're they're actually kind of dense on story, so you could stretch that story out and. Focus on and and Yates is a great artist, so you could focus on some really gorgeous art in it, you know. And sort of, I I was reading a couple of the old Bernie Wrightsons last night and noticed how, um, he's sort of um, Yates sort of is not copying, but he's working with that Bernie Wrightson look. But it's in these small little condensed panels, and Bernie Wrightson would spread out over a whole page sometimes. Oh yeah, you know? yeah. And it was just gorgeous, and it had that that um, monster movie look to it. You know, it had a it was a horror comic look, and this is sort of in between, you know, a regular superhero comic and a horror comic, in its you know panel construction and stuff, and it's it's sort of fighting its own self. And oh, I'm, I'll have to mention the Phantom Stranger story is resolved in this one, and the. What the hell was that guy's name? I can't remember his name. The, yeah, I can't remember his guy. name either. But Varnack, the only redeeming Karnack. quality, yeah, the only redeeming quality of that story was the art, because is... uh, it had Howard Bender was the artist, but Tony Tony Dizaniga uh, love his ink. I like his art yeah. too, but in this one, he's just the inker. But it adds that like colon the... edge to it. Yeah, he makes the Phantom Stranger look freaking awesome, man. But the story is just stupid. stupid. I mean, you know, the the whole thing is involved with this guy, whatever the hell his name is, capturing people's souls in jars to prolong his own existence. Which Tannerac. Sounds, no, that's cool. We've heard that before. It's Tannerac. That's Nick, right. Nick Neck. That's right. Tannerac. Story full the, of holes. The part of it I don't get is, all right, so... um. The woman in the one part, she smashes the thing, sets her soul free. So now this Tannerat guy's got no more power at the moment. He he's he's out of life force. So typically, I don't know. Maybe the writer was just trying to do something we hadn't seen a million times. But anytime I've ever seen a story about like somebody who's trying to be immortal, but all of a sudden they use up their power or whatever. What happens to them? They get old they, and they crumble they old, to dust. Yeah, exactly. They age and they die or whatever. In this one, for some inexplicable reason, he regresses to an infant and then I, I guess just to a puddle of goo at the end of it. <laughs> a sperm it, and an like, egg. A single yeah. sperm and an egg or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's like, what What the hell? I, how did that happen? But, just but at least you get the last the last panel is a baby, you know, sticking out of Tanarak's robes, like cursing and telling him you'll see him in hell. So you just hear a little <laughs> baby voice, you know, going, I'll see you in hell. So, <laughs> exactly. So that's kind of <laughs> cool. But, yeah, for the most part, it was very stupid. And the Phantom Stranger stories on the, are the <laughs> opposite of the Swamp Thing stories where they're thin stories spread out. And they're, a sh- and they're short, you know. And they they're still they 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 put very little story in a lot of like this two parter it was you know come on <laughs> it was, it's just a, they're just toss away they're very toss away yep, stories very, they really so. have no heft to them they're just a little poof in the wind just a little fart in the comic wind <laughs> now <laughs> but now 
we uh, we can take a break and come back come back to some absolute comic greatness. If this is a if if the Phantom Stranger is a fart in the co- comic wind, this this one is like the world's biggest dump, like the most satisfying dump you'll ever take. The Walking Dead. Hey, we're back, and now that we're, things are going to take a little darker turn as we go into Scott's um, summation of Walking Dead number nine. Yeah. All right, so... Pick up pretty much where we left off last issue. Um, you know, having spent the night in an actual bed for a change, in an actual house for a change, Rick wakes up uh, the next morning and he finds Lori is already awake, and she's just sitting there, kind of watching their son Carl sleep. And Rick and Lori, you know, they talk and they wonder about how Carl is handling all this since you know the world basically fell apart. And, you know, Lori laments the fact that their new baby that she's pregnant with uh, will never know how things were before The Walking Dead. And, you know, also that Carl won't really ever remember it either. You know, he won't remember the way the world used to be. And, you know, she's sad for the fact that he won't grow up to do any normal things, you know, like taking a girl to the movies or anything like that. In other rooms in the house... Tyrese and Carol are kind of coming together and, and having the love connection. And in another room, Donna uh, tells Alan, her husband, that she's actually hopeful and that she, you know, could learn to be happy in this new, you know, this gated community that they've staked a claim to. So later that morning, Rick rounds everybody up and he gives everybody a, a little pep talk and they divide into teams to search the other houses and clear out any, you know, lurking zombies. Uh, Donna and Alan are one team and Tyrese and Carol are another and then Rick goes back out to the RV that they left parked outside this community to get Tyrese a gun Alan warns his wife Donna to be careful and she just kind of laughs him off and tells him that he worries too much and there's a great shot of a zombie standing basically right behind her right next to her almost that nobody even notices and it's just done very subtly. I mean, the, the reader themselves could, could easily miss this zombie just kind of lurking in the dark. Anyway, Rick, uh, he gets a gun for Tyrese out of the RV, and he turns to walk back into the community. And then he sees the sign, you know, the sign that ended the last issue when the snow fell off it. And it reads, all dead, do not enter. You know, at, at this point, he just he sums it all up, you know, with, with words that I like to use a lot. Oh, fuck. So he hightails it, you know, he moves his ass and he's back in there as quick as he can. He's intent, you know, to warn everybody, you know, to get out that it's not safe, but it's already too late. Careless Donna is viciously bitten right in the face, you know, right right in the eye, really, by the zombie that she didn't even see before. And everybody comes running to her defense and Rick runs up, you know, and he's screaming at them, begging him, you know, don't shoot, not, you know, don't, not to fire a shot. And Tyrese, you know, he's restraining Alan at this point because he realizes that there's, there's nothing that they can do for Donna. You know, she's actually got more than one zombie on her now, and they're just chowing down, and, and she's dead. They, they just can't help her. But grief-stricken, you know, Alan fires his gun, 
and then all hell breaks loose. You know, we see that the place is actually just crawling with zombies that, you know, up to this point, they were just kind of milling around, hanging out, you know, seemingly uh, unaware of Rick and the gang even being, you know, in the same place where they were. But now, you know, they all come a shambling like, you know, they've just heard the dinner bell ring. So, you know, the the, the heroes, you know, the, the characters, they all see this just wave of zombies coming. And Rick tells Tyrese and Carol to get everybody out to the RV as quick as they can, you know, grab the kids and just leave. Rick tries to get Alan, but, you know, he's so distraught that he just begs Rick to, to just leave him behind. Which pisses Rick off, and he tells him, you know, he needs to think of his kids, and that, you know, they're going to need him now more than ever with their mother being dead. Tyrese and Carol get everybody out to the RV except for Tyrese's daughter and her boyfriend. Uh, Rick comes running up to the RV, asks where Tyrese is, and, you know, he's told that Tyrese went back for his daughter, so Rick orders them to just drive off and leave him. You know, they'll catch up, and then he runs back to try to help Tyrese. And Rick, at this point, you know, because there's so many zombies, he has to actually fight his way back into the house. And, you know, we see Tyrese, he comes busting in on his daughter and her boyfriend, and he's got his hands up her shirts. And, you know, Tyrese is really pissed at this point. He tells them to quit screwing around and get their goddamn clothes back on. Uh, at which point Rick comes running in, and he does a great, you know, Princess Leia imitation by telling them, you know, we can't get out that way. So they all climb out the window onto the porch roof. And, you know, from there, there's a great perspective shot kind of looking over Rick and Tyrese's shoulders at this just endless sea of zombies that are just standing around, you know, reaching up for them, trying to grab them. And, they're, you know, they're left to wonder, well, what the hell are they going to do now? They're completely surrounded with no way out, nowhere to go. At this point, uh, Dale comes flying up in the RV, just smashing through these zombies and Rick and the gang jump onto the roof of the RV and they just tear ass on out of there. And they, you know, they have to leave the gated community behind. Inside the RV, um, Alan's little boys ask where their mommy is. And, you know, at this point, Alan just falls completely to pieces when he tells them that she's dead. Am I clicking? Because I feel like I'm clicking. Nope. You don't no, hear good. anything? No, okay. you're fine. All right. Carol and Lori, um, you know, they try to comfort him and the little boys and the RV just kind of drives on and we see, you know, day and night pass and, and it looks like a couple of days go by in which basically the group just tries to cope and survive at this point. You know, they stop and they siphon gas and they even do some scrounging for supplies. Rick does some worrying about Alan's, you know, state of mind and what might be going on with him and the women just worry about the food supply, which is, you know, dwindling rapidly. And, you know, the way that they had to leave that gated community, they weren't able to take anything with them. So they're, they're down to just scraps. So, you know, left with very little options for food or anything, they stop and they make camp and Rick and Tyrese are going to set out and do some hunting. Well, Carl begs to come along with them. So then it's the three of them, Carl, Rick and Tyrese uh, head off into the woods Rick and Tyrese, you know, they talk about Alan and Rick is worried, you know, what he might do to himself or possibly even to other people. You know, the whole thing that just happened with Shane a couple issues ago is very fresh in his mind. And he realizes that, you know, 
that these are extreme circumstances and that you know these people you know, they might not know them as well as they think they do and they might be capable of things that you know they wouldn't ordinarily be you know with the state of mind that they're in so anyway at this point they hear a noise and as they're looking around trying to figure out what the noise is or where it's coming from there's suddenly a gunshot and Carl is hit Rick goes completely to pieces and Tyree shouts into the woods demanding to know who's shooting at them and this guy comes kind of stumbling out and he's trying to apologize you know and tell him it was just an accident he didn't mean to shoot anybody and all this and Rick whirls on the guy and shoves a gun you know right deep into his cheek and he's you know yelling and screaming in his face I'll kill you I'll fucking kill you and that's where the issue ends yikes <laughs> and uh, wow. yeah this was a powerful issue i really really like this one yeah this was this is this is when this series really kicks into high gear when you start realize this is when you start realizing in the world of the walking dead that no one's safe nobody no uh, anybody could get killed injured something terrible can happen to anybody at any point in time zombie or not it's just a very dangerous world that we're living in and right in one issue two people are you know i mean carl shot and and you know another another one is just eaten alive <laughs> you know so i i never had any great attachment to donna and i i wonder if if kirkman purposely made her in the early issues a, a somewhat unlikable character yeah and she's you know, just she, starting she, to warm up in these exactly. last two issues she's just starting to like relax a little bit and say you know maybe it's not so bad that we've got you know uh older guy you know that those two have hooked up you know in the context of what's going on and i'm and you know, and it was. It also illustrates that you just, in the world of The Walking Dead, you can't relax. You can't fool yourself into thinking that you, because because in this issue, she really has a sort of long conversation. That's sort of the same conversation that she had in the last episode with her husband about you know how she was maybe approving of the romance a little more, and um, right. it, but this one, you know, she's starting to say. You know, I could. This seems like a nice place. I could like living here, and these are, you know, basically really nice people, and we have a good group of people here, and this could really work out. And it's, you know, you can't. Over and over again, we'll find in The Walking Dead that you can't think like that. It's a different world, you know. It's saying this over and over. It's a, di a different world started, whether you like it or not. It's there's no smooth transition. <laughs> It's it's gone from civilization to dog eat dog to you know basically everywhere around you is a life or death situation and you know her her character is the first one to relax in this and she's and, and that's why she's that's why she's taken out he's you know she's actually warned seconds before she dies you know don't don't relax. <laughs> Don't, right. don't assume that you're safe, you know, be still be on the lookout. And she just blows it off and says, oh, whatever, you know, and that's when you see the zombie lurking behind her. You couldn't be more, couldn't be, you know, Kirkman and, and Adler could not be more clear on the point that they're trying to make on that, you know, with that panel right there. That panel says it all, sums up this whole episode. <laughs> the second you relax... 
uh, you know, death will come up behind come up behind you and deal you a nasty blow for your insolence. <laughs> Basically, yeah, that's yeah that that was just that that scene with her getting attacked was was wicked. You know, the fact that they had to to leave the community behind. You know, because I mean, this you know they they granted they'd only spent the night there, but all of them. We're already falling into a mindset of, you know, we can plan for the future now. We're going to be okay. And they don't even make it a no. day, you know, yeah. and, and they realize, you know, it's starting they to get, really set in. They get one in. night's sleep. They get one yep. night's sleep in a bed and then they have to leave. And this has, this has something I've always wanted to see since Night of the Living Dead, which is, you, you know, when they're in the house, they go in a lot of these movies, they go in the basement. No, you go upstairs. Right. Block off the stairs, and then you can go onto the roof. And you know, once you're on the roof, you're pretty much you're sort of cut off, but you're safe. So that's where these guys, you know, naturally progress right onto is the roof. And I've always pictured that why there was never a scene in one of these movies where all the characters were out on the roof looking down on a sea of zombies, like you know, three feet below, you know, with their heads just like three or four feet below you, you know, and wondering how you'd get out. And another thing I wondered, not to tangent just a little, but I'm still in the zombie world, is in Night of the Living Dead, it was established zombies don't like fire. And then mm-hmm. it's never followed up after that. There's never like, hey, we can light a torch and clear a path through there. Because I think they realize that that's too easy of a thing. Because I've always wondered why when you're some in some compound and you're surrounded by a sea of zombies... Why every once in a while you wouldn't just want to huck a Molotov cocktail out and burn 15 or 20 of them, you right. know, and maybe the fire would spread and burn 150 of them, you know, but that never gets utilized in these, but, um, man, there's just doom in every panel of this, this comic. I'm looking at, there's one scene after they've left, um, the gated community and we're siphoning gas of just the RV at night and it's sort of just a silhouette and and it's on the the left side of the panel it's a long thin panel and it's mostly black and on the right side there's some tree branches in the foreground just sort of sticking down but they look like it's on page yeah i'm looking at it here it, yeah it looks it looks like lightning it looks like it basically literally is like there's a storm ahead of you <laughs> you know here's the characters and here's ahead of them there's like this big it's a tree branch, but it looks like a big lightning storm, and that's sort of where they're headed. You know, their future is not looking bright in this. <laughs> I mean, you can after they leave that community, the the sense of demoralization, yes, is is just. I mean, it's palpable on every panel. I mean, it, people are kind of standing around and just kind of. Yeah, they're they're kind of hunched. They're kind of you know. There's a great panel of Tyrese. You know how people kind of reach back and rub their neck and stuff when they're like tired yeah. out and stressed out. And you know he's doing that and just a lot of panels like that of people just kind of standing around in a in a state of a shock state of and shock depression. What, yeah, what do we do now? They're they're directionless. Basically, it's down to food and shelter at this point. And they have shelter in the RV, but it's a, you know, I mean, all those people crammed into the little RV, but that's what they got. And and they're running out of food. And then when they decide to go for food, then they're getting shot at. So it's just bleak. <laughs> and, and really, you get the sense, 
that they're just headed for more, you know, more layers and layers of demoralization. And it sounds very depressing. And in a way, it's depressing, but that's where Kirkman's writing and the art bring it to that level where it just, it's not one of those things. I stopped watching the HBO series Six Feet Under because it was just so stunningly depressing and it had to top each, you know, by. The third or fourth season, it was just like, oh my god, I don't, I actually like these characters and I don't want to see them go, you know, because it was just a sort of, oh, you think this is bad? Blah, now this happens. And, and that's sort of what happens in The Walking Dead. But it's so, it, it pulls you along so much that, and it's so well represented that it never becomes completely demoralizing, you know? As a matter of fact, it's kind of inspiring in the way of like, you know, at the basis level, human life is still going to have a, a chance, even though it's just going to live in a different, darker, more evil world. But there's still, you know, he just gives you enough nips and tastes of, of you know, the real, the things that make life worth living, you know. You get just little tastes of, of the things that make people human and make humans like being around other humans or you know there there still are you know there's still i mean otherwise every by issue 50 every character would have just like slashed their own wrists you know and said what the hell right so you would you had said earlier you know how this issue really brought to you you know how nobody was safe and that was the big thing i took from this one because you know, I guess even though I might have thought I was prepared and, and thought that, you know, I knew that no one was safe in the story and all, seeing Carl get shot in this story, that really was two powerful. Kids. You, yeah. you, you have two kids who have both been at Carl's state of development, so that right. that yeah. has more resonance. You, I mean, you you don't know how it would feel to have a kid get shot but you know it triggers that I'm sure as soon as you see that it triggers that instinct in you and you know and I mean who couldn't I who couldn't identify with you know putting the gun in the guy's face even though the guy didn't mean to do it and just be like I'm gonna fucking kill you you know I mean that especially after the, the everything that's of, happened you know the the real person you know that that shot him would be Kirkman, you know what I mean, as as yes. the writer of the story, and it just—that's when it really hit me that wow, you know, Kirkman this this guy's willing, to, shoot this willing to go there, yeah, you know that that there there evidently is no place this guy isn't afraid to go, you know. We and see that's that. That's what explored. Mike said in his his post. Nothing sacred with this, mm -hmm. and you know that's that's one of the things. That I think really more than than just about any other aspect really makes this uh, story stand out. You know, this this series. I mean, is the fact of you know he's showing you with things like this shooting a kid that you know what I'm gonna break conventions and you know because I mean there's been all kinds of zombie movies. You know, just yeah. take just just taking just the uh, Romero ones alone. I mean, how often do we did we see, you know, here were entire, you know, the entire world's overrun by zombies. Well, Night of the Living Dead, that was one of the penultimate parts of Walt Night of the Living Dead was the kid coming back to life and troweling her parents, you know, killing her parents with a trowel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was, 
And, but at that point, that was a pretty hearty taboo, only to be really beaten by the remake of Dawn of the Dead, which actually addressed the... Actually, that, that was one, when I was in the theater, I'm like, oh my god, they're going to go there with what happens when you have a stillborn fetus. Right, you know? yeah, and I remember at the time, now, you know, I'm no prude or anything, I, at least I don't think I am. But I remember watching that movie, and that was the one part of that movie that I felt they went way over the line was the the zombie baby, and so that. But again, it's something that could actually happen. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. you know, at least the baby wasn't like crawling around real fast and taking people out or something. But I mean, right. it that was that, but that was a really it to 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 me. I thought that was sort of necessary to that movie. Because it hit, that was the part of that, you know, as, even though I'm not as much into, I don't don't like the whole sequels one-upping, that was the part where they introduced a new element of something really dark, where you go, oh my god, that's dark. And are they going to do it campy, or are they going to, you know, I mean, that's the thing about the reality. "Quote unquote reality of a zombie apocalypse is really, bad, you know, really, really bad things happen, and and like comics media in general acknowledge in movies that bad things happen, people die and stuff. But a lot of times there's d- distinct lines drawn with children, babies, exactly. fetuses. Yeah, that was, yeah see, and, that's where I was trying to go. Is that that's that's exactly the point I was trying to make. Is that but we're yeah. getting to a point where that's what's left to, and and but that that's what's left. You know, there's not much left. You know, nothing is sacred anymore. So they have to go a little further. But um, with Walking Dead, and to a lesser extent with Dawn of the Dead, I thought both of like when these guys step out over the line. They step over the line in the way that reality, you know, reality sometimes steps over the line. You know, you'll be out in public and something will happen that's either really, or something happens really terrible, like you see an accident or, you know, there's a fight or there's something, something that happens where, you know, lines are being crossed and that happens in reality once in a while. It doesn't happen to people every day. Well, depending on what context you're living in, if you're like maybe a crack addict or living on the street and, and, you know, a hooker or something, you would see all sorts of crazy stuff more often. But in a zombie apocalypse world, that that visceral, terrible stuff is going to be happening all the time because all of a sudden, you know, humans aren't the top of the food chain anymore. There's all of a sudden predators on humans and human-on-human predation. So all of a sudden... You know, in reality, some real, you know, fetuses and babies and children would be getting harmed and dismembered and just horrible, right. horrible, horrible things that nobody wants to think of or even see or, you know, or, or like, not that you don't want to see it. I don't want to see, I don't want to see a fetus, something happen to a fetus in a zombie movie, but I'll watch it. And I'll and I I, I I won't be like I can't watch this I won't watch this I'll go there I'll I'll go as dark as a movie wants to go for the most part as long as it's you know not like a snuff film I don't want to see a snuff film or something like that or something where they really saw off someone's arm or something like that like like the reality stuff that you see on the internet but 
Well, yeah, like those but, damn uh, fictional uh, those de- movies that were so popular when I was working in video, you know, years and years ago. Those damn Faces of Death. I yeah. never understood what the hell the appeal for I've that shit those. was. I've watched those, and and watching them, you also wonder what the appeal is <laughs> of watching them. People, it's curiosity, and and most of the time, it's 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 that thing of where. You satisfy your curiosity. You're not necessarily enter- some people are entertained and like, you know, they get drunk and watch stuff like that and laugh. But those people have, I I think those people are in a way kind of uptight, and that's sort of the and the laughter and stuff is just their way of dealing with their tension over it, or you know, and people watch it for because of fear of death. You know, the same reason why for the same motivations that people like horror that. You know, somebody like I watched that movie Martyrs and it made me think about why would I want to watch a movie like this, you know, because it wasn't like I wasn't, quote unquote, enjoying myself while reading. Although I do enjoy myself when I read Walking Dead, I, you know, I anticipate and savor reading The Walking Dead, although sometimes it's not, quote unquote, enjoyable, but it's enjoyable to the point of where it elicits the reaction that horror is supposed to elicit. And right. that, and and on some level, I enjoy that, and uh, and most people do. That's why horror is will always be, you know, horror novels, horror movies will always be a big deal because people, people, it's a way of people's way of dealing, you know, penultimately with death. So, right. So well, ultimately, you know, when, when it's over with, you can close the cover if it's a book or a comic, or you can walk out of the movie theater if it's a if it's a right. movie, you know, with a sense of. God damn! I'm glad that can, wasn't me. So or yeah, can, I guess. or you can watch it and you know get get you know like Friday the Thirteenth stuff is stuff that gets you wound up and then you're able to blow it up, blow off steam by either laughing or just being like, oh wow, that's a great gore effect or whatever. So you know you get to laugh off death a little bit, you know, or you get you know it's cathartic. So you know it's always going to be know, a this... big genre no matter what. <laughs> This this particular issue was anything but cathartic for me because I, I at the end of it I was the my my first time reading this I was left really really shook up for, from this issue I mean everything and well was you fine should be. <laughs> up until oh yeah yeah I know but I mean I was fine with Donna and everything that had happened up to this point but seeing Carl shot and then laying there bleeding out in the snow really hit home because up to this point I guess I really didn't mm-hmm. expect I you know because most people don't go there. Most comics right, draw yeah. it up to the line, or they they will they will hint at it and give you the fear that it's going to happen, but then they'll back down at the last minute or right. yeah. t- anything. Movies, TV shows, everything sort of likes to back down because if it goes too far, it can really upset people. But right. personally, think, uh, I think no. horror should really upset people. So that so I love it when. Love slash hate it when stuff like that happens. Hate it when I'm reading it, like because you empathize with it. But I love it because it had the power to bring me there, and you know, in some way, it, you know, you get that you you get maybe a little more insight into the experience of something horrible without having to actually have it happen, right? <laughs> For better or worse. I mean, we're left with. Uh... You know, we've got four kids at this point in the story. Yeah. You know, we've got Carl and uh, what's her name, Carol's little girl. We got the two little boys that just lost their mother. And I guess, 
you know, if I'd have been pressed about it back at this point, you know, what what do you think is going to happen with these kids? I would have said something like, well, you know, there's always going to be at least one adult that's going to live to to manage these kids and keep right. these kids safe. And we might stick with, you know, this book might last long enough to see some feral where, kid. Well, no, to where, where Kirkman would actually be able to age them and we might see them make it into their teens and then something horrible happens to them. But yeah. I really, I guess I really did not these, expect to see the kids get shot or chomped or These kids you know, are going to be tough little son of a bitches by the time they're teenagers. They're going to, you know, they're going to be. They're going to have to be. Oh, yeah. And, and I sort of picture in a zombie apocalypse at, at the beginning of it, there would be a lot of kids... Because the immediate thing is the adults are going to, like, you know, metaphorically pull the stagecoaches in a circle around the kids. That's right, the yes. first human reaction, family reaction, is protect the kids. So right on, at the very beginning, right on top, everybody's main priority is going to be protect the kids. But then as time goes on, it's still always going to be a priority, but there's going to be less adults, and the kids are smaller and weaker. And the kids, and you know, there'll be a lot of kids and old people at the beginning, but then they're they'll be called out really quickly. So, like by the point it's in in the present tense of the current issues, I think there's a lot less kids. I think a lot of the kids have died from you know, God knows what you know, any amount of reasons. You know, at this point, a year's passed. There's probably been a lot of people who've died just of disease. Because they've had had didn't have access to medicine and hospitals, clean water, <laughs> yeah, infection, stuff like in, that. infections and stuff like that. So, and and that that will get a lot of ki- you know that'll take out the kids and the old people. So, without without the help of zombies at all. So, it's a it's a not <laughs> not a nice world, and it's and and it's. Way better to experience it through a comic book <laughs> than to and 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 it always maintains you know the the thing that always is going to probably keep this from going too far in my mind anyway maybe not with other people is that you know the odds of it really happening are pretty slim. Now a zombie apop- apocalypse if there was some disease at what you know like a um um a scenario like the stand. You know, uh, these the zombie apocalypse mo- movies aren't that dissimilar to the, the way The Stand was, you know, except The Stand was just like people versus people. But that would still be the sort of, you know, this is a way of... Zombie comics, to me, are about the end of civilization, of how civilization dies and how humans and civilization aren't necessarily permanently married together, you know, and that's always in the back of people's heads is... Civilization, you know, we have all we have all this wonderful stuff around us, but it is always balanced on a, you know, it's like those pie plates on top of the sticks, you know, it's right all being, you know, kept up by by society running around in a circle and constantly keeping all the plates spinning, and uh, one one misstep and those and one plate stops spinning and that can set off all the other plates and. All of a sudden, you got broken plates, and everybody knows that's in the back of their head that that's a possibility, and uh, you know that that the lack of civilization is just basically just around the corner in the shadows, 
at, at all points in time. Well, that's why I'll, I'll again at this point I'll, I'll recommend to folks you know that are enjoying this book, uh, the Exterminators, because that was definitely what I felt was the underlying theme in that book was that things can you know, just we, go downhill. Yeah, that that at any that, time. that the complete, you know, the complete uh, ruination of what we think is our mastery of, of this planet is, you know, we're, we're a hair's breadth away from yep. it all just collapsing at, around us. At any point, at any given point in time in history. Yeah. It, as, as long as there's civilization, there's always, civilization is always just on the edge is always just, you know, yeah. On the razor's edge ahead of the primal basic needs of, of survival of food, shelter, and reproduction. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so on that happy, cheery thought, yeah, I think we've got it in the in the bag for this issue, for this uh, episode. Yeah, we? and 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 we'll see you next month if if in fact society doesn't collapse and all of a sudden Scott and I become hunter gatherers. In that case, you can come around our fire. <laughs> wherever we happen to live and we will do two two freaks around the fire <laughs> at night with uh with our shotguns warding off the zombies but until then we'll keep doing it on the internet Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsen.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. TwoTrueFreaks.Libson.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email us directly at TwoTrueFreaks at gmail.com and thanks for listening to the Two True Freaks podcast. The Two True Freaks now have a phone line where you can call and leave a completely inappropriate message. Maybe we'll even use it on the show. That number is 1-585-COP-LURE. That's 1-585-267-5873. If you enjoyed this show, why not review us in iTunes? And if you didn't enjoy this show, why not review us in iTunes? Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U.